Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull, and thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Well, we're continuing our shows on this COVID experience, really what's going on right now, how are people and companies dealing with it, and what should we expect in the immediate future? And I know a lot of people around the country listen to almost all these shows, and you know some of my guests. Well, I have a couple of my favorite guests here. We have Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock. They're both partners with PwC on the phone today with me, or kind of on a Zoom here. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. I just hope well, we don't get Zoom bombed, Michael. That would be... Uh... <laughs> no Zoom bombs. Well, gentlemen, you guys got to track this, this real estate market and the economy all the time. It's kind of crazy times. When you guys look at it and you talk to your larger clients and things, um, can, kind of where are we? If you look kind of overall at commercial real estate in a big bundle, where are we? What's going on? Well, let me tackle it very macro and then we can get more micro. Um, and Byron, feel free to cut me off if you agree or disagree. But if you think about it uh, on a purely macro sense, one of the things, and, and Michael, you're good enough every year to have us on to talk about emerging trends, right? One of the things you find in a, in a crisis is an acceleration of a pre existing trend. So we were seeing a trend of uh, people working more and more remotely. Uh, we saw a growing gig economy of roughly 60, 70 million people. Uh, we saw a tremendous amount of those people having sort of what we would refer to as the side hustles. So they may be an independent contractor uh, working from home in what would traditionally be an office using job. We were starting to see that. Right now, virtually our entire workforce in America that is, a, is an office occupant is working from home. Right. So we've we've taxed the infrastructure of the Zooms and the Google Meets and the, the Microsoft teaming products. And we're finding a way to collaborate virtually. Um, however, what's unclear is how productive that workforce is and what decisions landlords will ultimately make uh, about bringing people back to work, what decisions companies will make about bringing people back to the office. But right now, sort of the economy is sort of doing its best to continue to interact. Here's something that um, we have to sort of figure out, though, is this trend of working remotely and connecting virtually something that's going to consume a large part of our go forward economy in terms of whatever the new normal is? The new normal will be abnormal, but whatever the new normal is. <laughs> and the other thing that is unclear is to whether or not our economy will suffer from it. And let me just throw out a hypothesis and then uh, you guys can both react upon it. If you think about every innovation that's happened um, in, modern, uh, in our modern economy, and I'd even go back farther than that, that, that idea probably came from a chance encounter, okay? And I'll explain what I mean by that. What we've lost right now is unscripted time in businesses unscripted time amongst innovators. So think about the traditional water cooler. Somebody went to the water cooler, I went to the water cooler, and who shows up but Byron Carlock to fill up his his uh, uh, his Harvard Business School mug and with, with hot water for his tea. And I say, hey, Byron, I was thinking about this, what do you think? Well, if we're all disconnected the way we are, we're not doing that. So Simon and Garfunkel wouldn't come up with Sound of Silence, and Lennon and McCartney wouldn't come up with um, 
uh, she loves you or, or whatever, because all of those things were born of chance encounters and, and Gates and, 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 and Wozniak and uh, um, Bomber and all the folks that uh, created all of the tools and jobs uh, that we have today all created those ideas and chance encounters. So that's the thing that I fear as we navigate what this economy looks like uh, going forward. If we, if we continue to be a part, what we won't be doing is coming up with those ideas. And that obviously has a big impact on, on retail. Uh, but my first thought really is kind of for the office sector. Uh, what does that mean then for the future of the office sector? Are people going to really use a lot less uh, office square footage because they figured out they can work at home or are they going to figure out <laughs> people aren't being productive and well, I think they're, they're going to need to get them in the office and give them more space. I think there are going to be several trends to watch there. I, I've been spending a lot of time over the last week with folks trying to figure out how they restart their work schedules in a few weeks. And I think many folks are going to look at continued work from home for those that want to do that or are not ready to go in the office or don't trust the environment. And so we're already seeing requests for improved systems, improved cyber, improved capability to make work from home a longer term phenomena. But that does not necessarily mean that the office is no longer needed. I think there's a tremendous need for collaboration, getting together face to face. It works for a short period of time, but not for a long period of time. Back to Mitch's point about productivity. And I think people need the socialization of the workspace to be effective in their teams over a longer period of time. I will say that the issues associated with densification may be rethought. Um, there's a publication that Cushman and Wakefield put out last week called the Six Feet Office that's relooking at uh, spreading things out a bit, um, increased disinfectant, sanitation, germ-free surfaces, entry testing, all of the things necessary to make sure the work environment is safe. And um, a final trend I think worth looking at is whether or not the urbanization around cities gets rethought as people reconsider suburban and maybe even rural locations for safety and business continuity. And we began talking in the fall about this trend of hipsterbia from a living perspective, but that was not necessarily the case for office use. We may see folks choose remote campuses again, strictly for safety reasons. And I'll pile on that point. Um, one of the trends that we flagged in Emerging Trends years ago was urbanization. And that's the trend that uh, I, I'm with you, Byron, I, I worry about in terms of young people and even retirees that were moving to urban areas. Are they still going to want to do that? Because urban areas seem to be the big germ factories. But hipsterbia and the movement to the suburbs, one of the reasons why that was happening was because the central business district was becoming prohibitively expensive from an office perspective. More and more people uh, like the live, work, play in the suburbs, and the left for dead asset class of suburban office was starting to see a little bit of a resurgence. Um, and it's something we talked about, Michael, in your studio in Atlanta um, you know, this fall. Uh, this past fall. So um, I, I think that that trend of his hipsterbia and, and the rebirth of the suburbs may be something um, pretty powerful. Um, I've been taking a really hard look at trends in uh, single family uh, and a little bit of trends in multifamily. And on the single family side, um, it, there's a siren call coming from uh, 
the island of Manhattan and the boroughs of, of uh, Queens and Brooklyn and New York of young families saying, get me out of here. Okay. Many of them who could uh, bunked up with friends, families, and whatever they could someplace else, because that, you know, having, having cabin fever in an actual cabin isn't so bad because you can open up the door and at least go outside. <laughs> having cabin fever in a, you know, on floor 19, when to get outside, you need to get into an elevator and you're petrified to be in the elevator because you don't know what the hell is in there. Um, people are starting to feel that pretty strongly. And uh, uh, it's interesting because the residential brokerage business is virtually shut down. National Association of Realtors basically said that every physical open house largely has been canceled. And we're in prime home buying season. When that kicks back up, and there'll be virtual uh, open houses and the like, but when that kept, kicks back up in, in major metropolitan areas, you bet there's a line of young families saying, uh, You'll tell me about the schools later. Uh, we need to find a house. Interesting. And you, so you think suburban interest in suburban markets, whether it's office or residential, uh, may increase then? Well, so think about, just let me finish your thought, Byron. I don't mean to cut you up. But if you think about it, if um, spreading your workforce out uh, six feet apart is something that's important, and you're going to find less dense um, environments to do that. And doesn't it make more sense to sign suburban office leases at a fraction of CBD office leases to spread out your workforce, right? And you'll put, you, we know where people live. Uh, and if you want them to get into the office, um, put the office near where they live. Yeah. And this is April 14th. And so we want to make sure that we have the title of uh, the date in our title of the show. And then we talk about it because things are changing. So, and by uh, the way, Michael, while you're at that, can you find the one I did a month ago that's completely <laughs> wrong and just flush that down the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. And back to the office sector for a moment. So it being April 14th, and the trends that you're talking about, and, 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 and they make sense, they're going to impact the use. I mean, we're humans, we're not going to forget about this uh, quickly. Uh, does that mean that the office sector is gonna get hit a little bit? It seems like the office sector, it, it shouldn't, but, uh, uh, but is it going to get hit a little bit? Are rents gonna be impacted? It potentially values somewhat. Well, to, to Mitch's point a moment ago, some transformation was already happening in office, and I think, this trend will accelerate to bifurcate those office buildings that are relevant and those that have lost their relevance. So I think this will be something that speeds up the recognition of obsolescence and those, those buildings, you know, 80% of our office stock was built in the eighties or before. And so the new office needs of late have been very different, very technologically uh, savvy, sensor sensitive uh, issues associated with telecom better. Um, 5G is coming and that's really going to be a, a determining factor as to which buildings are most relevant and those that aren't. And so I think the, the pace of change for buildings that meet relevant standards versus those that don't will accelerate as soon as we are back to work. Mitch, you may disagree. No, I, I think there's, there's, there's um, a headwind and a tailwind um, maybe it's a cross current at the end of the day. I'm going to try and use every possible nautical metaphor that I can muster here. But on the one hand, um, there's a movement to get people back to work. Uh, there's a movement to get people 
coexisting physically, um, but we were also seeing that we can be productive remotely. Um, and then we're going to have to try to figure out how we can be six feet apart when we are in an office. When you put all those things together in a soup, I think that it probably net, net, net works out to the same amount of space. Um, but here's the problem. Companies are in cash flow preservation mode, big time. And um, that you know, there's lost revenue across the entire economy. Uh, and what are, you, what are your two biggest expenses in running any business in a service economy? People and space. Um, so we're going to probably see um, unemployment at a relatively high level, even when people get back to work. Um, and we're also going to see pressure on reducing occupancy costs. Uh, right now, I couldn't figure out how to underwrite anything in the real estate uh, economy right now because you just don't know when this is going to end and we, you don't know when cash flow is going to start to be paid. But one thing you know is going to definitely happen. There's going to be tremendous pressure coming from CFOs on their enterprise to control costs. And we just did a, um, another round of our weekly, uh, bi-weekly rather, uh, CFO survey. We had 313 CFOs. And the overwhelming uh, conclusion was that 82% of CFOs said that they were going to be reigning in costs and two thirds, 67% said that one of the things that they're going to do is uh, revisit uh, investments that they had planned to make. So that's all about resource control. So I think overwhelming movement across everything I previously said in these cross currents are companies making decisions about investment and slowing down the pace of, of spending. And how do you think these CFOs feel and CEOs about the productivity of their staff during this work at home time? I think what's interesting about this um, crisis compared to previous ones that the three of us are old enough to have lived through and remembered, this crisis seemed to be about workforce preservation. Don't forget, we went into this with a 3.5% unemployment rate, the lowest unemployment rate in, in two generations, okay? And now we're looking at what, you know, 10, 15% unemployment, you know, 10% of the workforce uh, has filed for unemployment in the last three weeks, okay? So I think companies care about employees and maintaining those employees. I think the discussion around the productivity of those employees is inevitable, but right now it's not top of mind. I think it's going to become top of mind, but it's really hard to beat up on your staff, whatever business you're in, um, for not doing their job when they're managing life. I, I have a fundamental question, right? This is perhaps rhetorical. What are we doing about vacation, right? People take vacation time, right? When are we going to start introducing that into the mix? Um, this is the biggest vacation, school vacation week of the year for the most part across most school districts in the United States, okay? If it wasn't this week, it was last week. No one took vacation. There was a highly politicized issue in New York City about that, but no one took vacation. So I think it's really hard to answer the question about productivity. I mean, Byron, uh, you know, uh, I can speak for you, but you're welcome to speak for yourself. How many conference calls do you have at very strange hours of the day that no one's apologizing about scheduling the conference call at that time. I mean, no call me tonight. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I run a pretty big sector in the firm and we are 
we are very busy and our people are very productive finishing busy season on the 2019 work ending q1 work now starting you know getting helping our clients get q1 out the door tax season has been elongated our systems folks are sold out trying to help people upgrade their systems our occupier services people are very busy helping people think through workforce strategies and overlaying that is a whole attitudinal shift that people are great people that still have their jobs are grateful for having their jobs and i, I literally start some mornings at 3 a.m on europe and go to bed on asia and realize i've worked a 15-hour day sitting at my home computer and i think a lot of folks are doing that at the same time there's an appreciation for the simplicity of what we're getting to do right now family dinners time to sit and reflect I listened to Old Dominion's country music song this morning, Life is Short, Make It Sweet. It's really, you know, I, I, th I think we're going to look at this as a very memorable time of, of introspection and productivity is reasonable in our space right now. Yeah, well, it's certainly going to be a sea of change. Uh, we'll look back at uh, COVID time. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to take a quick break, just a moment. I'm going to get back. I want to ask you guys about some of the other property sectors and uh, what do you feel the impact uh, is there. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by Commercial Agent Success Strategies. Hey, if you're a commercial agent, Check it out. It's the best commercial agent training you have seen in your entire life. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Well, we have a great show. We're talking to Byron Carlock and Mitch Rochelle. They're partners with PwC. And uh, I want to ask you guys about some of these other property types. Here we are at April 14th, uh, kind of a sea of change going on almost daily here. Uh, what do you think the impact of all this is of today? on uh, housing and multifamily? Uh, let, let me take um, the multi side of it. Um, and because I, I, I touched the single family side a little bit uh, in, in the previous block. If, like I said before, before all this happened, we had a 3.5% uh, unemployment rate. Before all this happened in housing, we had a gap between household formations and statistically household formation is when children move out of their parents' home. We had a gap between household formations and new delivery of single family and multifamily to the tune of 3.5 million households, okay? Then that's cumulative from the last financial crisis to uh, let's say February 15th of this year. Um, that hasn't changed either. Okay, now maybe some of those folks move back into their parents' houses, but the fact of the matter is that overwhelming demand for housing 
still hasn't changed. And what also hasn't changed are all of the impediments that prevent us from creating new um, single family and multifamily. And I'd argue that the demand is there, but I think those impediments probably even got worse because credit is gonna be a tough thing to get for speculative construction. And by definition, multifamily is speculative uh, construction and single family is largely speculative construction. So we're not gonna meaningfully add to supply. We're still gonna statistically create households. Um, so what does that all mean? Um, I think the multifamily fundamentals are as good as they've ever been. Okay. The problem is I just don't know how many people are just going to opt because of unemployment. To, you know, we're going to get an, uh, an entire new generation. We made fun of the millennials for sleeping on their parents' couches. Well, <laughs> by golly, guess what? We're going to have Gen Z doing the same thing. Okay. Um, but I think overwhelmingly powerful is those are the underlying fundamentals. Yeah, and I guess in nine months we'll have some more family uh, households, some uh, Corona babies, right? <laughs> oh, there could be eight. It could be eight months. This thing started a month ago. There, I don't know what. <laughs> I was just going to add on housing. I think everyone was looking to see what collections would look like in April, and that was a a big consideration. And frankly, I think they surprised a lot of landlords. The Class A apartments really collected over ninety percent of their rent in April. Um, it dropped, did drop down to a little over 80% for some of the C stuff, according to uh, National Multifamily Housing uh, Coalition. But I think um, was a surprise because some people were forecasting 50%. I think the other thing that's interesting is uh, there are only 3.74% of mortgages requested in forbearance right now. And forbearances are pretty easily granted with um, deferrals to be paid back over 12 months with zero to 1% interest um, that means 96 and a quarter percent are not in a forbearance arrangement. Now you're and talking so about multifamily here, kind this of steady. No, this, this is residential mortgages. A residential. Single family. This, is, this, okay. was, this single family houses as reported by Fannie Mae yesterday or today. And so I think really is showing that we've got the ability to withstand one month, but what happens next month? And I think that's why there's such pressure right now to rethink getting back to work. And out of this, I think we'll also see some new uh, economic opportunities be born around things like testing and tracing and other jobs that didn't exist 30 days ago um, as we, as we reenter the workforce. I look at the, um, back to the residential thing though, it's not as bad as we thought, but it could get worse fast. And that's why May collections will be so important to watch. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in, I, I would say that um, towards the end of March, um, we were all, as analysts who comment on the market, all looking at April 1 when bills were due as the real proving point. Um, you know, Byron, I, I'm with you on the 3.7% of homes in forbearance you know, that the Mortgage Bankers Association put out there, but the problem is that was as of April 5th. And I think um, let's wait until the month of April Let's see what happens when we get into the month of May to figure out how bad the carnage is. Um, but um, the, the question is, where does that credit risk fall? Okay, so if we have tenants who aren't paying rent in a multifamily property, does the credit risk fall with the landlord um, who sells to make a mortgage payment? Or does the landlord seek forbearance from the lender and say, now this is your problem? Okay. Um, I've always said in workouts and turnarounds uh, that you have to kind of follow the money. 
the question is, are we following the money to the underlying tenant who's responsible for paying? Or are we following the money to the lender who provided the loan in the first place? Yeah. Um, there's enough burden to pass along. The most important phrase, which we didn't use once in this uh, recording so far, is the through no fault of their own. Because everybody impacted by this is impacted through no fault of their own. And, and I've never been in a um, workout situation in my career. And both of you guys have also been involved with, you know, countless workouts and turnarounds where there wasn't somebody to blame. Right. Okay. Here, there's nobody to blame. And that's, go that's what's going to make all of this really difficult as we follow the money. Right. Yeah. So, and where the credit risk. Ultimately, Neil Kashkari um, did a bunch of interviews over the weekend, and he said, this isn't a financial crisis yet. But the question will be, will all of this credit risk just roll back to banks and this fall on the financial system um, ultimately? And that's why I think the Fed and the Treasury Department are trying to get ahead of it, and they're trying to put as much credit in the, in the, the banking system so that we can sort of loan our way out of this. And there's winners and losers as far as sectors goes. Obviously, the hotel sector's uh, decimated. The uh, retail sector's hit hard. But what about um, industrial? Is that ultimately kind of a winner in all this? It looks like it, that could be the answer. I think um, if you look at the growth of the large retailers during this downturn, like Target, Walmart, and Amazon, it's testament to, as Mitch pointed out in his first comment, the trend had already started. This will accelerate the trend of e-commerce's growth. And uh, it takes warehouses to facilitate that growth in e-commerce. And I think that that is, um, that's probably a, a new reality. Yeah, I mean, do we get more jobs uh, from onshoring? Uh, people realizing that, hey, we need, uh, we need more built and created uh, here in the U.S.? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I had an, an exchange by email um, while Byron was talking. No, Byron, I was just kidding. I was listening to you. <laughs> but um, th what's interesting is as we try to figure out how to scale the tests, right? So if we want to get back to work, wherever we work, this is agnostic to, to sector. It could be warehouse work. It could be retail work. It could be uh, even hotels, uh, the, the front desk people. Are we going to put big plexiglass in the front desk, like the bulletproof glass that you see in the South Bronx in a bodega? Um, so um, as we figure out how to get back to work, we're going to figure out how to test everybody. That's the testing is the key to reactivating this workforce. Well, we just can't possibly produce, produce enough tests. So what if the companies that had the patents for those tests make them generic automatically and say anybody can produce them and we have quality standards around that? What would we have ordinarily done? We would have offshored that um, to somewhere in Asia, most likely China, and those would be produced around the clock. Um, and the question is, how are we going to source the supply chain? And what are the economics of the domestication, if that's the right word, if not, I just made one up, of our supply chain, right? And or look at perhaps the most poignant piece of legislation of this administration is NAFTA 2.0, also known as USMCA, because we've created tremendous incentives to source a supply chain in North America. Uh, and the question is, what's the cost of that? Um, I think we're going to recalibrate the cost system and figure out how that will impact profits going forward, but also 
how much that we can pass along to the consumer. But I think everybody's going to realize having control of the supply chain of much of what we consume that's vital um, is going to become very important, right? Pharmaceuticals, um, the personal protective stuff, all of that stuff, we're going to find it you know, really, really important. Why am I saying all that? Because if we're sourcing our supply chain more domestically than in the past, we don't have enough warehouse space, right? And if retail, brick and mortar retail becomes one of the many casualties of all of this, because retailers have gone out of business, then maybe we can use some of that space uh, for storage. But the fact of the matter is um, we'll need more, if we rely more on e-commerce, uh, we're going to have to need create or repurpose to create more uh, warehouse. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more repurposing of some of these great uh, retail properties, especially as a lot of these restaurants uh, just do not come back. Well, gentlemen, what would you leave our audience with to think about related to commercial real estate or multifamily uh, this April 14th with uh, where we are today? I'm going to, I'm going to throw a, a massive caveat on what I say, which is the, the one thing that all of this has shown me, and I want to go back to something I said at the outset, which is pre-existing trends are accelerated. One of the trends that overlied the entire economy was the pace of change, right? And what's amazing to me is how the pace of change has even accelerated throughout all of this. How on a Monday, I could have looked at the landscape uh, there, there'll be things that I say on Fox Business on Monday on Mornings with Maria that when I'm on a show later in the week, I'm saying to myself, I cannot believe I said that on Monday <laughs> because the whole world would change. Yeah. So, um, the, that, so that, that's, a, that's a statement of fact. We're just accelerating, accelerating to the perhaps to an unsustainable level of change. Um, but the big caveat then is anything we prognosticate is probably going to be wrong um, and that's the challenge for all of us. How do you navigate and underwrite a decision-making process when you know that change is so frequent, right? Just look at the volatility in the stock market. And maybe the VIX is bouncing around 40 and it had been as high as 80. But look at that. The volatility in the stock market make it very difficult for individual investors and institutional investors to underwrite that. That's the challenge. I think it's the opaqueness of what the future looks like, that is going to be one of our biggest obstacles in a capital-intensive asset class like real estate. Well, thank you. You've just increased my, increased my anxiety. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know what, Michael? I, go ahead, Byron. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I was just going to say, uh, tagging on to what Mitch was just saying, history is our friend here. Uh, we, we have seen for at least four cycles in our careers. Our youngest associates have never seen a down cycle. Uh, we always make it through it and generally come out in many ways stronger. And I think the trends that were in place will accelerate and leave our real estate uh, inventory in a better position as we repurpose retail that is no longer relevant, figure out what to do with obsolete office, build better and more relevant residential units as shelter, and use technology to advance um, all things convenient. And so I think just as we dealt with the pandemic in 1918 to 1920, the depression in the 30s, World War II, 
all the way through the the global financial crisis 12 years ago. Uh, we 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 will make it through this and we'll be stronger in the end. So Byron, if I were to sum that up in a soundbite, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> And necessity is the mother of invention. You know, I agree with you. As I've gone through uh, downturns and seen my clients go through downturns several times, uh, I don't like to call them recessions. Uh, uh, I've seen the same thing. We, we fixed what was broken. Uh, as uh, Mitch, as you mentioned, you, you, there was trends that were already kind of problematic. Uh, they just come to the forefront faster. We fix, fix them faster. We come out stronger. We all come out of it okay. Uh, everybody hang in there. Gentlemen, uh, great show. Thank you for being on. Appreciate uh, your opinions. All right. Our pleasure. Thank uh, you, Michael. Stay safe there, Michael, and in your, uh, your layer out there in, on the lake. <laughs> uh, we'll do it. All right, guys. Take care. Be careful. Thank yourself. you, Michael. All right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us around the country. Uh, let us know what you think. We appreciate you sharing the show and connecting with us on your favorite social media. We'll continue uh, this increased uh, show schedule. You know, obviously we went, we used to have a show once a week and now we're doing two, three, four, five shows a week because things are changing that fast. We're going to continue to cover what's going on, how people and companies are dealing with it and what's next. So until the next show, be sure you always lead, learn and laugh and join us for America's commercial real estate show. the show? Consider referring business or doing business with our sponsors. Bull Realty is a commercial real estate sales, leasing, and advisory firm doing business throughout the Southeast, headquartered in Atlanta. Visit bullrealty.com for more information. Commercial Agent Success Strategies provides video training for commercial agents. This training gets five-star reviews from even the most experienced brokers. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. You're invited to connect with us on your favorite social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't miss a show of special interest to you. Be sure and subscribe to the show on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And at the show website, CREshow.com, you can subscribe for a weekly email announcing the show topic and guest. While you're there, you also found more videos and podcasts. Thank you for watching or listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show.